Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Damon Knight, who died at the age of 78 back in 2002, made his mark in the world of science fiction and fantasy as a short story writer, novelist, and as an editor of several magazines and anthologies, most notably Orbit, which ran for over a decade. In a career that stretched from 1940 to the mid-1990s, he wrote 17 novels and a long list of science fiction and fantasy short stories. His most famous story, To Serve Man, became a classic Twilight Zone episode. For those in the field, however, he is also most noted for being the founder of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, SIFWA organization, and the co-founder of the legendary Milford and Clarion Writers Workshops. As part of the Probability series of science fiction interviews for KPFA, Richard A. Lupoff and I headed to San Jose for the Westercon Science Fiction Convention and interviewed Damon Knight in his hotel room on July 3, 1983. The interview began with questions about his start as a science fiction writer and his entry into a group of leftist science fiction writers from Brooklyn known as the Futurians in the early 1940s. In, I believe it's the introduction to science fiction of the 30s, you tell a wonderful story about how you discovered science fiction. It's the, the classic sense of wonder story, but I've never read it any better than your version. Maybe you'd give us the privilege of, of, of hearing an extempore version of the same Oh, I'd love to. I love that story. My first science fiction magazine was the August-September 1933 issue of Amazing Stories, which was a great big bedsheet-sized thing. And the cover story was The Meteor Man of Pla'a by Henry J. Kostkos. The cover was a kind of a dim, pastel blue and pink depiction of a couple of guys in aviator suits pointing pistols at several wogs armed with spears, and they're all standing on this kind of cloudy surface. And uh, when you read the story, you find out that uh, what it's about is these two aviators who fly too high and go through the heaviside layer and then land on the top of it. And here's that's what it is. The heaviside layer is this layer of kind of rubbery, spongy cloud. And the wogs who live there make it everything they need out of cloud, they, you know, beer cans or clothing or whatever. They don't wear any clothing, I don't think. And then uh, after they find out all about this strange civilization, the wogs become incensed for some reason and attack them. And the aviators fire, I guess, a Veery pistol at them, which sets the heavy side layer on fire. And it all burns up, and the wogs, the people, the aviators escape in there, and the wogs fall to earth as flaming meteors, thus the title, The Meteor Men of Pla'a. And this, this, I thought, was the greatest thing I had ever struck. I saw instantly that this was the right stuff. This was what I'd been looking for all the time. Did you ever reread the story? Oh, yeah. And? 
It's been a while since I reread it, actually, but I think the, the bloom was off by that time. In those days, when you picked up a science fiction magazine, and if you were a, a nine-year-old kid or whatever, every story had a brand new, startling idea. What prompted you to begin co corresponding uh, in the magazines and that eventually brought you to New York? This was Fred Pohl's doing. He was then the, the 17 year old editor of two magazines called Astonishing and Super Science. He got paid 15 bucks a week or something like that, and he had a budget of, I don't know, $150. And to fill space, he ran a, a fanzine review column in Super Science. This is how I found out about fandom. I wrote away for some of the magazines, got in correspondence with various people, uh, contributed drawings and articles to some of the other fanzines. And in my senior year in high school, I produced an issue of a fanzine of my own called Snide, which came to the attention of the Futurians, and they, they liked my adolescent humor. As a result, I got into correspondence with Robert A. Lowndes, who was then a sort of half-assed agent, and he agreed to look at some of my stories, which he mostly sent back with patronizing remarks like, put some plot in here or something. Where were you? You say sent back. Oh, I was in Hood River, Oregon, which is about 60 miles from Portland, and otherwise it's nowhere. Did you have any idea that the people you were dealing with were just a couple of years older than you, and not adults? <laughs> they seemed very grown up to me. In fact, they were mostly older than I was. Cornwood was a year younger. The others were in their 20s, except for Walheim, who was the old man of the group. He was about 30. No, they seemed a highly sophisticated bunch to me. So, as a result of, of Snide, somehow or other, and I, I cannot remember this, they must have written me a letter suggesting that I come to New York and become a Futurian. I cannot recall this letter, and that's strange, because I great recall for all that stuff. But I did. I went to the Denver Convention in 1941. Did you hear Heinlein deliver the famous speech, the famous speech? Oh, yes. How did you feel? Well, you were swept up. I was awed, yeah. I thought he was the first sane man I'd ever met. Do you still think so? No. Uh, I should say that before I went to New York, I was in Salem going to art classes, and uh, Walheim published my first story, which I sent to Lowndes. Got a letter from Lowndes saying, Walheim has this new magazine, but he has no budget. Will you, will you donate the story? And of course, I broke my leg to agree. I would have paid them. The story was called Resilience. The printers introduced a typographical error into the first line, which made it completely incomprehensible. But I don't remember being crushed by this. I was a little disappointed, but I was still thrilled to have an actual story <coughs> with my actual name on it in a printed magazine. That's one of the great moments when you first see your name in print. I think. So you came to New York and met all these people. Were you as awed when you met them in person as... Or was there immediately a period of disillusionment? Well... I was kind of shocked, I think, because the Futurians were not, not very good-looking people. I thought I was odd-looking, too. In fact, I was a, a gawky, six-foot, 97-pound teenager with a funny haircut. But anyway, we were kind of an unlovely group, uh, all misfits. Uh, the only thing that kept the Futurians together was that nobody else could stand them. You wrote a book about them called The Futurians. It has been a rather controversial book. Uh, for one thing, it's, it, it's highly readable. It's, it's, one, it's like, you know, 200-page gossip column. Who could resist it? But at the same time, it has been criticized, perhaps for, for dwelling too much on the seamy, juicy aspect of these people and their lives. Do you have any particular feelings about that? Yeah, strong feelings about it. I hate sanitized biographies. I think if, a, if somebody's going to 
lay out money for a biography, he ought to get the truth as far as it's publishable without running into libel laws. I like finding out that famous literary figures were human beings. I like to know what their failings were. I think it's a great mistake to clean up our heroes. What you do instead of inspiring the youth of the country to emulate them is to discourage them because they know they can never be as faultless as that. They can't be pure virtue. I think it's just a matter of, of literary honesty to describe people the way they were, and that's what I tried to do. Do you have any particular reaction to the other books which have appeared covering some of the same material? Fred Pohl's The Way the Future Was, Isaac Asimov's Autobiography. Fred has a different attitude toward this. He doesn't believe in saying anything uh, disparaging about anybody he knows in print, although he will say terribly cutting things in correspondence and in person. I respect his beliefs about this, but I don't share them. Fred's autobiography, I think, is highly readable, very entertaining book, but it's, it's sanitized and it doesn't have the flavor. And SMOs? Well, Isaac, of course, is concerned with the entries in his journals. He certainly tells you more than you want to know about almost anything. It's too bad. I think that he was so narrowly focused on the, on the journals and what he wrote when, rather than the enormously entertaining anecdotes that he will tell you about his life. Isaac was with the Futurians for a short time until he took off with Campbell. What was he like as a kid? Was he the way he is now, only younger? By the time I got to New York, he was no longer a Futurian and not uh, living in New York, so I, I didn't meet him at that time. The Futurians, I think, were a remarkable group. The names that are just there on the cover of your book, Cyril Cornbooth, James Blish, uh, Asimov, Fred Paul, yourself, some lesser-known names, but people who have really done excellent things in a quiet way, like Richard Wilson, for instance, yes. who has, in a very quiet way and in a low volume, in several senses of that term, uh, has done some marvelous work, such as Mother to the World. Yes, I love that story. Did you publish that? Yeah. That, that was a real jewel. I've skipped over a name that I had jotted down, Johnny Michelle, one of the fascinating figures. I think so myself. I was touched, moved by what I found out about Michelle after many years when I did the research for the book. I tracked down his widow and found out what had happened to him after I last saw him, which was like in 1946. It's a tragic story. John was the number two person in the Futurians. Walheim was our leader. John was his constant companion and right-hand man. I don't know how to summarize him, but he was uh, a poser. He wore smoking jackets and uh, sandals and smoked a pipe and tried to make the world believe that he was a, a great lover and bon vivant and all this stuff. He had a very small talent, published some science fiction stories, very few, went into comics writing. Aside from being an interesting character, there was a political movement that, that had already become semi-legendary when I was a little kid fan in the early 1950s uh, called Michelism. What about that? Well, most of the Futurians were Marxists of one shade or another. In the early 30s, I guess, Walheim and Michel tried to introduce uh, Marxist concepts into science fiction through a manifesto written by Michel or written by Walheim and byline by Michel, I forget which. Uh, they just wanted uh, progressive thought and ideas in science fiction, which was a kind of a mild proposal. But they got a lot of flack from this, from the rest of fandom, which was non-New York, uh, non-Jewish, non-Marxist. And there's still a lot of 
bitterness about this today and some surviving members of family. Sam Moskowitz is still carrying this tremendous grudge. It turned up, it appeared in his review of the Futurians when he used my book to whip Walheim. After all this time, that seems extraordinary to me. I, I can't carry a grudge that long. Is that the uh, thing going with the 1938-39 convention business? The, the Exclusion Act. The Exclusion Act. <laughs> uh, what was what was that? Uh, Walheim got thrown out? Or? Moskowitz was running the 1939 convention in New York, or actually in Brooklyn, maybe, I forget. And he barred, I think it was six members of the Futurian Society. Jimmy Geraci was standing at the door, he was a very large man. So they repaired to a saloon or something and issued manifestos. It's like, not even a comic opera, but a comic operetta. I know. They all took themselves so seriously. They were trying to do European politics in, in a teacup, and they were just intensely ferocious about it. There were editors on both sides of the fences. Would one of the editors say, in the Moskowitz camp, would he accept the story by, say, Fred Pohl, and would Fred Pohl accept the story by one of the, or, or was it just a split down the middle? It was pretty much split down the middle, but not, not necessarily for the reasons you're thinking of. The Futurian magazines, Walheim's and Lowndes, were very low-budget things, which naturally and inevitably published a lot of Futurian material. Uh, they published stuff by other people, too, but they, they were paying half a cent a word or a quarter of a cent a word. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they were not getting first look. And the, the other magazines bought occasional stuff from Futurian authors. Walheim, for example, had... At least one story in Unknown. I'm not sure about Michelle. Lowndes and Blish, a little later, sold uh, several stories to Camden. There wasn't any absolute barrier. The Futurian magazines were sort of an in-group thing. These magazines were starring science stories and science fiction quarterly uh, cosmic stories. Uh, let's see, Fred's were astonishing and super science. And then, I suppose, in a sense, the last of the classic Futurian magazines was Worlds Beyond? Or was that the beginning of a new era rather than the tail end of the old? I don't think of that as a Futurian magazine. It was not, if you say that a Futurian magazine is a magazine edited by a Futurian, then of course it was, but in the sense that the other Futurian magazines were Futurian, this one wasn't. What was it? Oh, it was just a, a shot at, oh, I suppose my version of FNSF. But this was before FNSF. No, uh, FNSF came out in the fall of 1949, first issue. Worlds Beyond appeared in 1950, I've forgotten what month. What publisher was that? Alex Hillman, A Giant Toad. Did you find yourself publishing more Futurian stories by virtue of your relationship with them over the years? Or had that ended by then? It had ended in a, in a nasty, uh, threatened lawsuit in 1946. No, I published... Cornbluth, and let me think, Larry Shaw, it was, certainly was not packed with Futurian authors. Worlds Beyond, again, it's one of those, in science fiction history circles, people are always saying about, you know, uh, the aborted promise of this wonderful project, etc., etc. Well, what's the inside? Fred Pohl got me that job, too. I, I should, I ought to backtrack, and I will in a minute. I said to Fred, who was then my agent, who do you know who might like to publish a science fiction magazine? He sent me to Hillman, and they, they bought it. Fred has, has uh, done these tremendous favors for me over the years at least three times. Before that, in 1943, there was an opening at Popular Publications where Fred was working, and he told me about it and lent me a clean shirt, a white shirt, to apply for the interview in, which shirt he never got back. Anyway, that was my first editorial job. It paid me 25 bucks a week. I really think, looking back, that I was not exploited. Popular was divided responsible for a 
a number of magazines. Uh, each assistant editor would do all the donkey work on And those were the westerns and the science fiction? It was very educational. I did westerns, I did sports magazines, which I hated. I worked on mysteries. So during my first stage, I did another one later, Ayler Jacobson brought me back in 49 because they were reviving Super Science. They wanted me to work on that. In there somewhere, I also did two hitches at the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, which was then, I believe still is, a, a reading fee agency. Four or five of us sat in this bullpen, and they would hand out the manuscripts in the morning. These were manuscripts from aspiring writers who had sent them in with a fee, which then was five bucks for a short story and $25 for a novel, much more now. Out of the five bucks for a short story, we would get a dollar for writing this letter. And the first letter was always to explain the Scott Meredith plot skeleton, which had seven bones. You have to have a believable and sympathetic character who has a serious and difficult problem. That's your first two bones. Uh, he makes a series of attempts to solve the problem, each of which results in merely intensifying it. Then he reached the crisis, which, by the way, was Jim Bush's contribution to the plot skeleton. And then the protagonist solves the problem by his own efforts, and not aided by the U.S. Marines. I found out years later by, by actually examining a number of stories that this turns up rather rarely in short fiction. Anyhow, our first letter to a new client would always be this letter explaining the plot skeleton and saying that your story doesn't measure up because it doesn't have these bones. Then the next time he would send in another story and we would also report that unfortunately this one didn't follow the plot skeleton either and so on. They had two systems. You could work piecework or you could have a, a flat rate of 25 bucks a week, but you had to meet a quota, so it came to about the same thing. Which was about the same as you were getting paid over. A 25 bucks a week and all yes. the peanuts we could eat. <laughs> Lots of uh, later well-known writers went through that mill. Who were the actual people there? Lester Del Rey was there, James Blish, a couple of other people who became uh, paperback editors. Still trying to get to Alex Hillman. Okay. That was an interesting experience for me because I hadn't realized what a happy shop popular was. With a couple of exceptions, everybody there was nice. Easy to get along with it. It was a cheerful place to work. Hillman was not. There was an atmosphere of gloom in that place. Hillman would lumber down the hall with a half-smoked cigar in his mouth, and if you said good morning to him, he would look right through you and walk past. How did you get him, or how did Fred Paul get him to publish a magazine for you? And why did he then change his mind? This was at the point when there was a little explosion of science fiction magazines, Galaxy and FNSF. Imagination, all those wonderful old books. And Hillman thought he might be getting in on, on the wave of something that was going to make money, so he went for it. But I was so naive that I didn't ask for a contract or anything. I just walked over and said, well, you want to do this magazine? He said, okay. The returns on the first issue were bad, and he killed it. Three issues were published, but it was effectively dead after the returns of the first one came in. Do you remember what those figures were? How many did you print, and how many did you sell? I have no idea. I don't think anybody ever told me, and I was not smart enough to ask. You've had a couple of later stints as an editor, Orbit, of course, being the most notable one. Also uh, work, at least as a consulting editor for book houses. And uh, someone told me recently, it was news to me, you were the editor of If at one time. For three issues. Orbit is my baby, and that ran for 21 volumes. Sort of miraculously, I think, because it never reached the audience that it should have had. And the idea was that if we got hardcover, book club, and paperback, it would be a profitable thing. It would reach a lot of people. We didn't get book club often enough, 
And after Berkeley dropped it, couldn't get a paperback publisher. So Harper, I think, was extremely generous about it. They kept it going for, for let's see, they, their first one was 14, they ran through 21, even though it was not earning out, it wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't making money. What years were those? I think it started in 65, and the last one I can't tell you, 73 maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. How did that come about? Oh, it was just a brainstorm. I, first, I was thinking about a, a slick science fiction magazine. I almost invented Omni. But then I thought no publisher in his right mind would go for a big, expensive science fiction magazine at a time when the magazines we had were dying. So then I thought of making it into what I just told you, a, a book that could be published in hardcover, paperback, and get the book club. And I thought, you know, for, for the price you would have to charge then, people would go for it. Orbit, for those of our listeners who may not remember it, was a project that had certain characteristics of, of the book and certain characteristics of the magazine. It was an interesting sort of hybrid. That came after the move to Harper because I was really scared about its uh, survival, and I tried to jazz it up with some magazine things. Such as what? Oh, departments. I had a department consisting of funny little quotations from various people, dumb things that people write, all they say, which was quotations of a different kind, and I, I ran little little uh, puzzles and things in an attempt to make it magazine. And there were several other efforts after that to produce a, essentially a magazine, a paperback form, which seems like a workable idea, but nobody has ever made it work. It seems like such a total natural. You see, why doesn't it work? But it seems somehow it just doesn't work. It's the format, I think. You can't do the things in the paperback format that you can do in a magazine format. What 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 were your editorial requirements? As I recall, there was a famous underground story in the science fiction community. It says, never send Damon a story with a spaceship in it. It's a sure rejection. Is that true? No. I bounced a lot of spaceship stories because they were so tacky and repetitive. And I alienated a lot of writers because they were sending me conventional stuff, which I didn't want. And I turned off a lot of names that would have been great on the cover one by one for that reason, which probably wasn't a good reason. And I turned down, I don't know how many Hugo and Nebula winners, because I thought they weren't good stories, and I still don't think they were. But you had a lot of prize winners, didn't you? A few, yeah. The first few volumes got some Nebulas. After that, I don't think there were any. You published many of the most highly regarded stories of uh, Richard McKenna, Gene Wolfe. Delaney? Published Delaney? No. I bounced Time Considered as a Helix of Semi-Precious Stone. And who then bought it? FNSF, I think. Do you recall why you bounced it? Or you don't want to talk about that kind of thing? I thought it was dumb. The whole middle section has no justification, no motivation. Here are these people, uh, these uh, outlaws and criminals in a penthouse in a skyscraper. The hero, they're under an assumed name. He hasn't got any contraband on him. The cops come in a helicopter and land on a roof, and everybody runs around waving their arms. The cops don't post anybody in the lobby to watch who's coming out of the elevator, so everybody goes down and escapes. The hero, who, who is under an assumed name, an assumed identity, finds it necessary to assume another identity and disguise himself. <laughs> it just didn't make even a particle of sense. And nobody else noticed this. Everybody thought that was a terrific story, and I, I guess they were right. It is a terrific story if you don't bother to, to try to figure out why people are doing what they're doing. Was this an example of what Jim Blitch used to call the idiot plot? Yeah. 
namely, it may be nicely written, but it doesn't really make any sense, and the only way it can work is if everybody in the story acts like an idiot. Yeah. I think I'm the odd man out on this. I, I really like a story to, to mean something and make sense at the same mm-hmm. time, but I don't think most people look at it that way. At this point, then, since you know we've got into this area of story selection and what makes one work and another one not, I want to try a little game on you, if you don't mind. We were at dinner the other night working on an imaginary science fiction convention program item. A panel of editors called The One That Got Away, in which each editor is required to mention one story that he bounced, that he later lived through. In exchange for this, for every one that got away, said editor is allowed to give another anecdote called This Was My Greatest Moment. The time that Charles Hornig found a Martian odyssey in the slush pot, and so on. So if, if you would give us a one that got away, or a greatest moment, or, or, or as many of each as you care. Well, I also bounced Larry Niven's story, what is it, An Inconstant Moon is the yes. title? And I'm sure I could, I could rake up three or four others that, that won awards or became very famous stories that, that I rejected. Every editor can tell you about this. We all do it. We can't help it. Well, give us some proudest moments. Oh, well, I found Gene Wolfe from the Slush Pile and James Salas and uh, Gardner Dozois, a whole bunch of others. Were you the first person to publish Gene Wolfe? I think he had sold a men's magazine story or something of that kind before, but I think this was his first science fiction sale. It was called Trip Trap. You don't remember that one. No reason you should. It wasn't one of his great stories, but it was good enough to to buy it, and then I got a stream of just great stuff. Oh, I bounced one of his, The Death of Dr. Island. Again, award winners that you had in there brings us in sort of the side door into the SFWA. Now, was was that an outgrowth of the uh, legendary Milford Mafia, a cliquish uh, mutual admiration society run out of Milford? There was a lot of that kind of thing against the Milford Science Fiction Writers Conference. Judy Merrill and I got together in 1956, I guess it was, and said, why don't we have a a writer's conference in Milford and put it on the map? And we were so naive and so dumb that we didn't know that writer's conference is a bunch of famous writers lecturing to little old ladies in tennis shoes. And instead, we just invited science fiction writers and sat them in a circle and got them talking. And this was some kind of innovation, I think. But it was based on something that went on in the Futurians during my my years there, there was something called the Inwood Hills Literary Society, which consisted of three or four Futurian writers getting together in Cornblitz's apartment or Walheim's and discussing their stories. And I'm sure that must have been in the back of my head when Judy and I founded Milford. And then there was a, a, a split between Milford and Red Bank. Red Bank was where Fred Pohl and Luster Del Rey lived. So it was it was kind of like, you know, the two two adjacent colleges, the, the, the rivalry. Uh, excuse me for, for interrupting, but there seems to be an autobiographical sketch in one of Kurt Vonnegut's books about attending Milford. The famous line, I love all you crazy bastards, yes. etc. Yeah. Can you give us the inside version of that? Because I have it only as, as Vonnegut reports it in fictionalized form. He turned up at Milford one year with his teenage son, and he was very amiable. And he sat in our discussions and uh, workshops, I guess. No, probably not the workshops. And then he turned it into Mr. Rosewater. I had jumbled the two things in my recollection, the Milford Conference and SFWA. Okay, well, this was 65, and I'd been through the abortive effort uh, a few years earlier to found the Science Fiction Writers Association. And I was really steamed about it at the time. I realized then that 
all it took was some one person to say, let's do this and send out manifestos and, and just do it. I didn't have enough clout. I wasn't well enough known. 65, I got three offers in a row to reprint one of my stories for a flat fee. And that steamed me. And I thought, this is the time. This is the moment. That time I had a little more clout. And I thought I could get away with it. So I just sent out a, a form letter uh, warning people against flat fee anthology contracts and saying, if you'd like more information of this kind, send your $3 to become a charter member of SFWA. And I got a lot of responses. And when I had 78, I, I figured that was a nice number and made those people the charter members, wrote a, a set of bylaws. It was so easy. You know, the worst thing in the world is to form a committee. What happened? Supposedly, uh, A.E. Van Vogt had been trying to do something on the West Coast also. Was that in any way related? He was trying to form an organization, I think, to uh, protect science fiction writers from being ripped off by Hollywood. And it, I'd forgotten about it until you mentioned it, but I think it had a similar title. He wondered if I was ripping him off, but he was very nice about it. Van Vogt is a very nice fellow. We can move from here into Hollywood and then your own stories because of the Twilight Zone's version of To Serve Man. How did that come about? I did it. I sent a copy of a collection of stories to Serling, and he read it and uh, liked To Serve Man and did it. He said they found this guy wandering around the lot. He's the same guy who played Jaws in one of the James Bond movies. Oh, to teeth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they put lifts on him and a fright head on him. Made him into an alien. He was very good. The other side of this game of proudest moments and ones that got away, you're lying there, you're sound asleep, it's the middle of the night. You're suddenly awakened by the sound of trumpets. There in a golden nimbus is a white-robed figure with long golden hair, of course, the work, the wings, everything, who announces to you, I am the acquisitions angel of the heavenly library. I have come to tell you your literary fate, which is you will be totally forgotten. <laughs> Forget it. Your name and all of your works go down into the ashes. But one work will survive, and you get to choose that work. You say a work, so it could be a story, it could be a novel. Whatever. Or it could be my diary. A drawing that appeared in Stirring Science Stories in 1941. I suppose I would pick a short story. It would be hard to pick one short story because I've got a lot of favorite children. It probably would be the Country of the Kind, or The Handler, or Masks, but I would probably have to flip a coin. We don't have a bibliography in front of us right now. How many novels have you written? I'm sorry to hesitate, because that's done. Isn't it? I think it's uh, six or seven. What's your favorite? The next one. Is it well along, or is, or is it just out no, there? No, I've got, I've got like seven pages. Science fiction, fantasy? Yeah. Science fiction, yes. Yeah. Have you ever done any work in film or TV? I was involved in Captain Video. How did that come about? Captain Video was produced by a marvelous woman named Olga Drews, who had a contract with a scriptwriter who, whom she didn't like. I've forgotten why. So she canceled the contract and got rid of him, but had to pay him out of his contract. He was still getting paid every week, and therefore she had to go to non-union people for scripts. And she went to Scott Meredith, whose name people popping up, and he collected the various people he thought might like to do this for what to us was a munificent pay. I've forgotten what it was, 500 bucks a script or something. And a script would be, what, 20 pages, 50 pages? No, it couldn't have been 500 bucks a script because they were doing six 
episode serials. I think maybe it was 500 bucks for the series. I don't know. But it was a lot of money to us. And it was an interesting chance to, to work in uh, television. One thing I found out was that actors are much taller than writers. And it was a, a nice thing to, to try. Jack Vance did marvelous things for it. He was then a young, stocky, but 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 not not large fellow. You would never recognize him now. Uh, Jim Lish did some, and let me think. I've forgotten who else, but several other people. Did you get credit on the air? Oh, yeah. You, little Crawl came at the end. There was your name. We're taping this uh, at the uh, Westercon in San Jose, and there was a CEFO meeting this morning over the latest convulsions in the editorial and publishing field. As much as can be said without getting sued, David, I'd really love to hear an overall assessment from you of the state of science fiction and particularly science fiction publishing today. The you know movies and TV and other media are pretty much out of our purview. But uh, where do we stand? Are we going into a golden age? Are we going down the hole or what? Oh, we're in deep trouble as far as the writers are concerned. For the consumers, it's, it's the golden age because they're... I don't know how many hundreds of new science fiction books published every year, 500 and 600. More than anybody can possibly read, so it's it's a garden of paradise compared to what we had when I was a kid. Average quality is probably about the same as it was then. We have some very good stuff and a lot of schlock, and some people like the schlock. Most people like it. Well, who are three or four writers today that, that you would recommend? Oh, Gene Wolfe, number one. Okay. Everybody seems to agree on that. Yeah, Kate Wilhelm, uh, my wife, uh, Joan Vinge. In fact, I bought her first story. Tom Dish, Avram Davidson. I'm running out of names, and I know I'm leaving off five that I should think of immediately. What's going on in the field? What is the dynamic of 1983? Well, things are very bad from the perspective of writers because lots of big corporations have bought publishing houses, and they're, they're running them trying to run them like any other enterprise and what they're interested in is the bottom line and it's very depressing for writers because uh, things that we consider good are not getting the treatment they deserve books are being published in editions so small that they can't possibly earn out the advances and it's, it's, it's very bad people are saying that there's going to be a shakeout and that a couple of Ron Bush said that a couple of paperback houses will probably go down the two in the next year it may be that something like that will have to happen before we can have a rational publishing program in science fiction again. I think there are too many books. Damon Knight would go on to write seven more novels after the interview in the nearly two decades he would continue to live. As with many revered science fiction authors of the second half of the 20th century, without any new television or film credits, his renown has faded over time and few, if any, of his novels or anthologies remain in print, though some are available as e-books. You've been listening to an interview with the late science fiction and fantasy writer and editor Damon Knight, who died in 2002 at the age of 79, recorded on July 3, 1983, at the Westercon Science Fiction Convention in San Jose. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff for Probabilities, this interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in March and April 2021. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com 
or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.